0: Well, thank you, Dorothy and Pat and Becky. That was such a beautiful song of worship this morning. Well, today we're continuing and concluding in our Advent series, Studying the Servant Songs of Isaiah. And I hope this mini-series has been a great encouragement to you during Advent season. Uh, So often we only speak about the narratives that we've been reading in Matthew and Luke. But again, these four sections really stand out from their context in the book of Isaiah as we've been seeing. They're a beautiful and glorious description of what our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come to do. And they really just stand out even as you read through the book of Isaiah and you'll stop and notice, well, who is this servant in Isaiah 42 and in 49 and in 50 and then today in 52 and 53? These sections are unique treasures among the prophets. And my hope and prayer is that you will really treasure these prophecies. They highly exalt Christ as Savior of the world, and they strongly encourage us as the people of God to be spreading the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And I think you'll see today that we actually need all four of these songs together to really get the complete picture of who this servant of Yahweh would be who would be this Messiah? And this final song that we're looking at today is quoted and referenced in the New Testament so much so that you might even say the whole New Testament is built on this song. You might say that. So please turn your Bibles to the fourth song beginning in Isaiah 52:13. It's also printed for you in your worship folder if you want to follow along there as well. But just a way of reminder, the first song in chapter 42, you know, Yahweh commissions his servant for this magnificent and far reaching work in the world that you wonder well, who in the world could accomplish this? Because when this servant comes, he's going to remove all the theological ignorance around the world. This servant is going to free people who are imprisoned to their sin. This servant somehow. Is going to fulfill the longings of every human heart that we sing at this time of year to establish justice in the earth. The servant's going to do all those things. Then in the second song in chapter 49, we listen to the servant and the Yahweh speak to us and and speak to one another about their worldwide work that the servant, that God would reach out into the very corners of the earth to save the people that he's chosen. And then in the third song that we looked at last week in Isaiah 50, The servant gave a speech about his coming into the world, and then the Lord God followed it up with words of encouragement to believe the most incredible and unbelievable thing, and that would be that this obedient servant would have to suffer in order to accomplish all these things. And we're left wondering at the end of the third song, well, how does this suffering fit into accomplishing all of these goals? And that's where the last song comes in. It's the most significant part of his work. His suffering is described here in great detail for us. In this last song, it's the most significant one. And we learn that through his servant, God would accomplish his will of justifying many sinners. That's what Isaiah 52 is about. God would accomplish his will by justifying many sinners. Now, there are five stanzas in this song or this poem that detail the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and its results. They're printed for you, but it's very simple. They're all in three verses each. And so the first three, verses 13 to 15, there's the announcement of Jesus' glory. The second stanza is about the story of the life of Christ. The third stanza, which is the heart of the story. And then the fifth stanza details the story of the death of Christ. And then finally, the fifth stanza stanza talks about the glory that Jesus Christ has gained. So may the servant, the eternal son, this morning, may this be our prayer, that Jesus Christ would be exceedingly glorified in our eyes yet again, and that we would understand that the servant would come to accomplish the will of God to justify many sinners. So this first stanza is really an overview. It's just giving you a picture of of what you're going to be reading about in the rest of this poem in verses 13 through 15. And so we read at the beginning, Behold my servant, shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond any of that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So the outline here in the very beginning of this first stanza is pretty simple. In verse 13, there's this opening announcement. You notice how all the songs begin that way? Behold, look, see, listen. You have something to do as the people of God, and that's to pay attention to the Word of God. And then in verse 14, we see this great degradation that the servant would have to go through and just the unbelief surrounding all of that. And it's just a little introduction because there's more to come in the song. And then in verse 15, we see that there's going to be many turning to belief. And again, it's just a, a little snippet of what you're going to see in the rest of the song. So in verse 13, in this opening announcement, we know this servant quite well, actually, all of us who've been listening to these servant songs. We know who he is. We know it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he would do Yahweh's desires, and he would act wisely, and he would employ the best means and the best ends, and and he would prosper God's plans of salvation. Because you see, in eternity past, there is what's called the covenant of redemption. In Latin, theologians refer to it as the pactum salutis, and it's this this agreement between the three persons of the Holy Trinity, the one God, to accomplish redemption through the Son and His coming. And this will involve great suffering, as as already been told, and, and detail will come further along today, but yet with such obedient suffering would result in great glory. For the Son, the servant, would be highly lifted up and exalted, And we immediately think about Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and his reigning in glory on high right now. As the Apostle Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2, this Jesus who died, he's talking about, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth what you see and hear. Well, then verse 14 goes on and talks about this great degradation and unbelief. And God reminds His servant that the suffering will first be very, very great. He's going to be marred through His beatings and sufferings to the edge of unrecognizability and become repulsive through the trial and crucifixion. And the immediate response of the people, of the many people at that time, is going to be to be appalled, saying things like, this is the servant? This is supposed to be the Redeemer? This can't be Him. And yet the greatness of His sufferings would testify to the efficacy of His work of salvation. But this will be developed later more in the song. So then in verse 15, as the introduction continues, we see that many eventually, though, are going to turn to belief. Ultimately, the astonishment of disbelief would turn to astonishment of belief, and it would start spreading. The priest, priest, Jesus Christ the servant, would sprinkle many nations and peoples, cleansing them from their defilement and their sin. Those who were mistaken would be in awe over him. Even the great ones of the earth would become speechless. The many would come to see and understand, and that word, the many, is a very important word in this song. You just watch how many times it comes up. It's a key word, and we'll explain it later on. But the many would come to see and understand and to believe in the suffering servant of Messiah. It's happened. People have believed. It's happening still, and it's going to continue to happen until the Lord Jesus returns in glory, and then... It'll happen, of course, in fullness, our seeing, our understanding, our standing in awe before Him like never before. Isaiah is telling us that the true identity and work of the servant would become clear around the world. That's what all four songs have been about. It's going to become clear around the world that the Gentiles would receive salvation. The Apostle Paul in Romans 15 says this And thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. As it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 52, 15, this verse we just read, but as it's written, they who had no news of him will see, and they who have not heard will understand. Because it's this song that inspired the Apostle Paul to go preach the gospel to the world. So this is the announcement of Jesus' glory in the first stanza. It's an overview at the heart of the song and through his servant God would accomplish his will which is to justify many sinners. Do you remember being appalled at the message of Jesus and at the Messiah? And do you remember then being astonished with great awe and having your heart and your mind opened in believing the message? Do you stand in awe this morning Astonished at your Jesus, who's the suffering servant's Messiah. These are the types of questions that we're going to be considering this morning. And I'm going to tell you right now, do not try to write everything down on your paper. Don't do it. You know why? Because you might miss something. Trust me, just follow along in the text. And the Holy Spirit will remind you of what is there, what He wrote about the Messiah, the Son of God. And just enjoy the Scriptures. After all, it's Christmas time, so you don't need to write anything down. The second stanza relates to the story of the life of Christ, and it begins in verse 1, who has believed what they've heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The outline here is pretty simple. Verse 1 is a few people believed even in Isaiah's day. That's who he's talking about. No one would listen to him. And then in verses 2 and 3, it talks about the birth and the life and the ministry of the servant, our Lord Jesus. But we begin in verse 1, and Isaiah confesses at the beginning beginning here that his dismay, and that people would not believe his message. Um, Even among his own people, they wouldn't believe his preaching. And the preaching of his contemporaries and his contemporary prophets were, were prophets like Micah and Amos. And Hosea. And they preached about the Messiah too. And people wouldn't listen to their message about the servant because the message is just too astounding. It's just too astounding. It's hard for people to believe what they were saying. You see, God hadn't shown His arm yet. He hadn't shown His strength to very many. That is, in other words, He hadn't revealed to many His workings with His Messiah yet, but He would one day when He would send His Son. And even then when He would send His Son, though many more would believe, Jesus Himself said in John chapter 12, While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and He departed and hid Himself from them. But though He had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. That the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled which he spoke. And there's a quote from Isaiah 53.1. Lord, who has believed our reports? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because this prophecy keeps getting fulfilled over and over and over. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 10.16 says, However, they, speaking of the Jews, did not all heed the glad tidings, the gospel. For Isaiah says, and he quotes Isaiah 53.1. Lord, who has believed our report. And the prophecy continues. And it's still true. Though the many who believe continues to grow, and there are still those that, when even they receive the gospel of salvation, they don't believe it. They don't take advantage of the light. They don't heed the gospel when they have it. And guess what? Isaiah 53, 1 gets fulfilled again and again again. And again, and I hope it's not true of anyone in this room today or anyone listening online because that would be so sad and so unnecessary. And then in verses 2 and 3, we read about his birth and life and the ministry of this servant, and they characterize the life of the servant Jesus among his people. Most importantly, God's presence and power would be with him. Notice that it says that he grew up before him, meaning God. He grew up before God. He was kept by God, preserved through it all because he's his precious son, the eternal son who became man. The salvation message would be rejected because he would be rejected as a messianic pretender. He just pretended to be the Messiah when he was here. He wasn't really the Messiah. And so these images of a tender shoot or a root out of dry ground means that Jesus had no significant credentials at the time that anyone should believe what he says when he says he's the Messiah. He would be seen as a tender shoot, like a suckling of a tree, a leech on the community. He would be seen as a root out of dry ground, coming from an unpromising background. Remember where he came from, and his family, and his location. It's like a dry ground, Nazareth, who cares about Nazareth, Joseph, who's he? This also speaks of his humble life circumstances and the general hardships that he had in his family of origin in which he grew up. In his person, he would just appear like a normal person, a normal man walking down the street, even a weekly man, someone you wouldn't even want to pay attention to, doesn't seem to be somebody of any importance without much promise, certainly, of being a Messiah. He would be unattractive to the people of his time, and throughout his life he would suffer, he would be despised, he would be rejected as the Messiah, even though he claimed to be it. Throughout his life he would endure sorrow and pain and grief and sickness of heart. For us, for whom he came, people would turn their faces, not believing in him, shunning him, considering it all just plain revolting what he claims. In the final analysis, he would not be esteemed, he would not be valued by very many people. If anything, they would assess him as just a man, and nothing more than that. I mean, what do people think of Jesus today? Many people think he's unattractive. And even if they give him some esteem or some value, they have to see him as more than a man if they want to be saved. You have to assess Jesus by more than just worldly and selfish standards that arise in your puny mind. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says Therefore, From now on we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we thus know Him no longer. You see, by the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and enlightens us that we see the true value of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God, the Savior. Has He opened your eyes? This second stanza in Isaiah is the story of the life of Christ in a nutshell. Do you remember in your life thinking that Jesus Christ was really unimportant, something, someone you just didn't really need to pay attention to? A story that's maybe for those nice, quaint, religious people down the street? thinking that Jesus was really an unsophisticated religious leader of any type and a repulsive one at that. And then do you remember how somehow the Holy Spirit changed your mind and then Jesus became so attractive to you, like the, he's the Son of God, he's my Savior, the one who would take away my sins. This morning, do you esteem him properly and identify with him as your suffering servant Messiah? Because it's through him that God would accomplish his will of justifying many sinners. Well, now we get to the heart of the story. It's the third stanza, verses 4 to 6. And it reads, Give attention to me, my people. Sorry, wrong passage. Surely, but you should give attention. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have each turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So now we reach the heart of the song, the heart of the story. It goes deeper into the cause of the suffering of the servant. And in verse 4, we see that he's struck down by God. And in verse 5, yes, he was struck down by God, but he did it for us. And in verse 6, the reason for all the suffering becomes very clear. He was struck down by God. His sorrows, or pains, as your translation might say. His griefs, or his sicknesses, your translation might say. Those are all symbols for sin by consequence. It's a literary device. It's symbolizing sin because of what it does to people, what it does to this world. And yet it truly speaks to all aspects at the same time of sin in our lives and towards sinners in a sinful world. And that's why this verse was quoted by Matthew as referring to Jesus' healing ministry. We have to appreciate even the larger image here that he for this. He carried our sorrows. It's written as though Jesus picked up the sins that were on your back, causing you to bend over in your sin, and he took them off, and he put them on his own back. And if you've read the book Pilgrim's Progress, you know exactly what this verse is talking about. All our sins, and all their havoc, and all their pain in our life, Jesus carried them. He would suffer for other people's sins, yet he would be considered at the time to be suffering for his own, because it looks like that's what happened. People would think that he's under God's judgment. I mean, he goes around telling people he's the Son of God and the Messiah. What a blasphemer. Of course he's going to die the way he died, claiming to be the Son of God. But in reality, he had no sin of his own to carry, because he was the perfect one The holy one, the sinless one, the sinless man, the divine son of God become man. What irony. That he did suffer the judgment of God, but it was the judgment that was ours that he suffered. Oh, he was struck down by God. But verse 5 makes it clear that he did it for us. He would be pierced through, your translation might say. Or he was wounded. Or it might even say he was profaned in your English translation. And then it says he was crushed. He would suffer a violent and destructive death on the cross. He would suffer in all ways. He would suffer physically. He would suffer psychologically. And most painfully, he would suffer in his soul. He would bear the sins of many and so bear the wrath of God for their many sins. We are the ones in willful transgression. We are the ones with the sinful Bent to our being it's in our nature and our whole life proves it. and no one is innocent there's a real guilt for sin that has to be paid in a real way and it was paid for us vicariously and in full by the one himself who had no sin our peace our healing our spiritual restoration comes by the chastisement and the scourging of this servant in propitiation. His sufferings, they all point to the cross where the great substitution would take place. He would become the cure for our sin and making peace with God on our behalf and healing our body and soul forever yet to be experienced. The Apostle John writes, And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He also wrote in the same letter, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, he, speaking of the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, the reason for the suffering then becomes so clear in verse 6 because Isaiah makes it so clear that we are the reason for the suffering of the Christ. We are the ones destitute of salvation, living in the miseries of our sin without God in this world and in peril of eternal destruction. We have purposefully left God as our shepherd. We don't want Him shepherding our life. We want to shepherd our own lives. And so we've strayed from Him and wandered on our own paths of sin. But the Father would lay our sins, our burden, to satisfy His objective wrath toward us upon His servant, because He's a just God, thoroughly just, eternally just. And as a result, He would redeem us for Himself according to His subjective will, because He's a merciful God, completely merciful and eternally merciful. And he would do this to rectify our rebellion against him in our sin and our natural fallen human condition. He would judge the servant in our place so that we could now have a shepherd. And the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. You see where he gets it from? For you were continually straying like sheep but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. This is the heart of the story because it's the middle stanza of the five stanzas. It's the fourth heart of the fourth song. Do you remember your own rebellion against God and the multitude of your sins and the horrifying wickedness that they embodied? Do you remember then at the same time the relief of your soul when God forgave you of Christ and you took hold of it by faith? and your burden was gone. It was no longer on your back. Do you recognize today the painful sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you because of your sin? Bearing the wrath of God for you as the suffering servant Messiah, because that's why God sent him, to justify many sinners. Likely, you're one of them, right? And so then we get to the fourth stanza, and it tells us about the story of the death of Christ, because if the middle is the point, and the second stanza was about his life, it makes sense that the fourth stanza now, bookending that little section in the middle, is about his death. And so then we read in verses 7 and through 9, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my, my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The outline here, of course, is very clear, too. Verse 7 is about Jesus' procession, his arrest, and his trials. That's what verse 7 is about. Verse 8 is about his death. Verse 9 is about his burial. You see, the whole gospel's right here. So Jesus, God's holy servant, underwent his undeserved suffering. Notice he's oppressed and afflicted without resistance. He patiently endured it all. He didn't protest. He remained calm. It's like a lamb in silence not knowing what's going to happen next, but yet we know that's not fully true because we've already read in the other songs, he knew full well what was coming his way, and he accepted it. He did know, and he knew what awaited him at the end of his unjust trial in this life, but he also knew about the glory. In Matthew 27, it's recorded, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. The imagery of a lamb takes us to the Old Testament sacrificial system, predicting that there would be this lamb who takes away sin. When Jesus approached John the Baptist in John chapter 1, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and he said to people, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is who Jesus is. The Apostle Peter writes, you were redeemed from your futile way of life with precious blood as if from a lamb unblemished and spotless. The perfect one, you see. The blood of Christ, he says. And then Jesus' death is outlined for us in verse 8. It was by unjust judgment that he was judged and murdered. By oppression and judgment, it says again, he was led away to his death on a cross. His suffering and death are outrageously unjust and undeserved. And if you tell this story to people that have never heard the story, they're in tears and anger that this somebody would do that to somebody like Jesus, even if they don't even believe in who he is yet. Try it. Talk to them about it. It was an outrageously unjust and undeserved. He was forgotten by the people after such great service to them. I mean, even if they didn't accept his Messiahship, all the healings, all the miracles, all the good teaching, all the blessings that he brought to their life, and now they just consider it worthless. And so God raises this question by Isaiah here that's crucial, and we wonder, too, how much did Isaiah really understand at the time? Now, the New International Version and some other translations will translate, he had no descendants to speak of in verse 8a, but we'll get to that later because it has some value. But it's not the best translation, and it's not the majority of scholars' opinions. It should be read as a question. Who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? No one did. They thought he died for his own sins, not for other people's sins. That's the answer to the question. No one stopped to consider that what he was enduring, he was doing for them as part of God's plan of salvation. They should have thought about that. But instead of thinking about that, they're thinking, well, this is wonderful because now we have another messianic pretender just snuffed out. Isn't that great? Let's wait for the real one. To the people, this whole humiliating arrest, the mocking, the crucifixion, the burial, I mean, that just confirms what they already believed. Now, there was a man later, who would actually consider this very specific text in Isaiah, verses 7 and 8. You know who I'm talking about? The Ethiopian official who had visited Jerusalem and was on his way home, and he was sitting in his chariot, and this is in Acts 8, you can read it on your own, but he's reading and it's quoted in the, in the Scriptures, this passage, verses 7 and 8, and he's thinking about it deeply. And he's wondering who this is talking about. And then guess what? There happens to be a Christian nearby named Philip. And he ends up in the chariot next to the Ethiopian. And Acts 8 says, and Philip opened his mouth and he began from this scripture. That's all he needed was this scripture to explain to the man who Jesus Christ was. God had placed Philip in that position, and he preached, and the Ethiopian believed, and he was baptized that day. It's a very powerful message. Then verse 9 is about Jesus' burial. He's disgraced as a criminal, though he's innocent throughout the whole ordeal. The people even assign him a grave with the wicked. They kill him as the most heinous criminal, hanging between two rebels. They're not just thieves, they're rebels. And if it were up to the people, they would just throw his body in the trash heap where it belonged but God provided and ordered otherwise for his burial because he wouldn't allow the disgrace to go that far. And so two of his disciples at the time, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they would provide honorable treatment for the burial of Jesus' body. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Signifying, predicting that there is more honor and glory to come. This is not the end of the story. But here in the fourth stanza we have, the story of the death of Christ as told by Isaiah. Do you remember how you felt the first time you heard the shocking story of Jesus' passion, his death? And do you ever find yourself forgetful of this grand drama of redemption and take it for granted, these last days of Jesus on this earth? Do you honor without embarrassment, even today, his humiliation? Not just Jesus' exaltation, but honor his humiliation this morning as our suffering servant Messiah, because it's through that that he would justify many sinners. This is why, you see, this story is really not ultimately a tragedy that we're talking about, and this is why I consider this one of the best Christmas stories ever told. And so now we get to the fifth stanza, the final stanza, and it shows us the glory That was gained by Jesus Christ, and if the first stanza was just sort of the introduction to what's going to happen, now we get to see the same thing spoken to us almost as in stanza one, but now it's from the perspective of the other side. It's from the perspective of glory in verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, for he shall prolong his days. Well, the fifth stanza takes us back again to the first, and it concludes the song for us this morning. Much is repeated, but it's being reviewed from this final perspective of glory. It's like we can forget about the death, because it was all accomplished, and there's great glory now. So the Father's pleasure in the death of His Son is what's there in verse 10, and then the workings of justification are stated for us in verse 11, and finally in verse 12, there's a great recap of the victory. So the father takes pleasure in the death of his son in verse 10. So in spite of the innocence of the servant Jesus, the Lord took pleasure in punishing him. Why? Because it was their purpose, remember? From the very beginning for salvation for us. It's about the covenant of redemption to redeem a people. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul writes, for what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. See, Jesus Christ would render himself a guilt offering, the perfect unblemished sacrifice life for life. This fully met the need, our need It was expiatory. It was compensation required for our salvation. It was the extinguishing of our guilt. And then the most glorious result would be the outcome. The suffering servant would become the glorified servant. He would gather the results of the work of his redemption. He would see it. He would see believers. He would see his church. He would see his offspring, and so if you go with that translation back in verse 8, now you see it coming full circle. Multitudes of offspring from his work. He would obtain resurrection. His days would be prolonged forever, because he would live forever. He would delight in the accomplishment of his sufferings, and so the will of God in its prospering. Because their will has been accomplished in the covenant of redemption. The will of God has finally been accomplished. And then in verses 11, we read about the workings of justification. Jesus' abundant anguish would be outmatched by His exaltation and satisfaction. All of this, Jesus would be fully satisfied. He would continue to delight in the ongoing salvation of sinners around the world ever since His death the result of his cross. Jesus delights in heaven right now over the salvation of one sinner who repents. So here's the concluding theology of the whole song. The summation of the message is in verse 11b. I'm going to read the NAS here. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. That's the summary of the whole song right there. It's referring to the servant's knowledge of God's requirements upon himself and then being faithful by perfectly knowing and doing them and effectively bringing salvation to mankind. He would justify the many and remove their guilt, bearing their sin and its punishment. And they would be declared righteous on the basis of his own righteousness. The Apostle Paul would later talk about the doctrine of justification in Romans 4, amongst many other places, he says, He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and which we hope and exalt and hope in the glory of God. You notice that phrase again, the many appearing so much, in our opening and closing stanzas in chapter 52, verse 14 and verse 15, here in chapter 53, verses 11 and verses 12, two times. You see, the application of the work of the servant in verses 4 through 6 and 8 and 10, all this work is for this group of people. It's for the elect whom he came to save and to effectively and fully die for. That's why he came. There's a particular group of people in mind that the servant purposefully came to redeem. Jesus is the one who said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And in Matthew 26, it's recorded, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And then we come to the great victory being recapped in verse 12. And I'm going to read it the way I think it should be read from the Hebrew. And that is here, out of the anguish of his soul, we're in verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion, the many. And he shall be given spoil, the multitudes because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's a great victory. There's been a great victory, and there's going to be one yet to come. In Philippians 2, it says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, in this verse, He received the rewards of victory. He got what He came to do. He got the spoils of victory. The booty is another translation. The booty has been apportioned to Him. He gets all of the glory for the salvation He accomplished. Now, of course, this passage, as you know, can be translated in other ways, dividing up amongst the great is another translation dividing it among the strong or the multitudes and of course reading it that way is is true of other victors victors will receive an inheritance of glory and what they do is they pass it around and they share it with those who share in the victory but yet he is the greatest that's what victors do They gather all the spoils from the battlefield, and then they give it out as booty to everyone who helped win the battle, but it's clear he's the strongest one. We can read it this way as celebrating the victory, that Jesus celebrates his victory and his glories with all of his redeemed ones. Theologically, it's true. These are certainly true of Jesus Christ. They've already started happening, and they're going to continue to happen in fullness. But perhaps the best way to read it is His receiving the great, the many. His receiving the ones themselves, for the Father has apportioned them to Him. These are the many, the ones who used to oppose Him. It's a widely accepted reading of the text by scholars of this prophecy, and the one I believe is preferred. The Lord Jesus Christ receives the rewards of His victory. All the spoils, the booty's been apportioned to Him, He received the people for whom He came to die. The theology is the whole book of the Gospel of John. It's all there. Then, because He's the great true servant, in verse 12b, of Yahweh, and He's accomplished this plan of redemption, Jesus Christ, it says, He poured out His soul to death as if He's a sinner, but really He's bearing the sins of many. Interceding on their behalf, and have you ever noticed before that Jesus himself refers to the fourth song of Isaiah in Luke 22:37 37 on the night of his betrayal? And he says, for I tell you, that which is written about me has to be fulfilled, Isaiah 53, 12 is quoted. He quotes it, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me, Jesus said, must have its fulfillment. And if Jesus said that, and he said that this verse refers to him, that's what it refers to. It refers to him. Our Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself the sins of many, which refers to us who believe. In Romans 5, we read, For as though through the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners. Well, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. In Hebrews nine twenty-eight, So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await. This interceding by Jesus Christ should be viewed in two ways. It refers to His bearing of the cross and the presenting of His offering in the heavenly realms, and it should be understood as the dispensing of ongoing grace in our lives that He purchased. Hebrews nine twenty-four says, for Christ didn't enter a holy place made with hands, like a temple, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. His cross work is done. He bought us. And then in Romans 8:34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, he who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. The Apostle John, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he continually brings grace into our lives. And then at the very end of the story, which we have in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that all of this was predicted, that all of this was done for one main purpose, and it has very little to do with us. It was all done for the greater glory of God the Father and God the Son. In Revelation 5.9 it says, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the glory has been gained by Jesus, and now we see the suffering servant is the glorified servant. You Remember when you first found your greatest joy and delight in Jesus Christ? as this one? Do you sometimes find yourself finding satisfaction in other things of lesser glory and you have to go back and remind yourself through prayer and scripture that this is what is to be gloried in? Do you rejoice this morning in Him and for Him as the most worthy God and Savior, the suffering but now glorified servant Messiah? He's your eternal happiness. He's your eternal glory; nothing else will satisfy you. Through His servant, God would accomplish His will by justifying many sinners, like you and me. So we have quite a full picture of our Savior here from these four servant songs. I hope you keep these together in your minds to review, to worship, to meditate on this Christmas season. Merry Christmas. The central application of the fourth song is obvious, we're to glory in the servant, the one who would save us, our Lord Jesus Christ. By Him God will justify many sinners. And you see, now if you look back at these five stanzas, you might retitle them all. Because as you read them and as we looked at them this morning, you might have actually thought I was reading to you the New Testament. Because the first stanza makes known that Jesus Christ is the astonishment of the world. Today and forevermore. Verse stanza 2 makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the despised and rejected one at the same time. Right now. But yet he's going to be the true and only Savior of the world. Stanza 3 makes it very clear that Jesus is the sin bearer, the wrath bearer for his people for eternal salvation. Stanza 4 makes it clear that Jesus is the righteous one of God, never to be forgotten again. And stanza 5 makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the exalted redeemer of mankind to be praised without end. So I hope you noticed that the fourth song of Isaiah is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel we proclaim is this one right here. We've been learning all along that that is our mission to fulfill and that we need this Savior to be our Savior. And if that's something that you want today, I would encourage you to talk to someone you know as a Christian here this morning and ask them to help you pray through it. Let me pray for you. Lord God, this has been an amazing time in your prophet Isaiah these last four weeks for Advent. We thank you for the clarity of your scripture. We thank you for the complexity of your scripture. Because our minds never stop working on how glorious you really are. And we pray this morning that you, Lord Jesus, would be magnified not just in our minds but in our hearts and in our thoughts, and in our prayers this coming week, especially at Christmas itself when we celebrate. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified at Calvary Church even more and more and more as the years continue forward. For your sake we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.